0: Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Alex Davies on Driven. First, though, wanted to let you know that if you enjoy this podcast or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, I've made it simple for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to buy it through bookshop.org. They don't pay me anything to say this, but I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this show, please do follow us on social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Books on Pod.
1: This is Matt Ridley, author of How Innovation Works, And you're listening to Books on Pod, and I've just had a really interesting conversation about my book. Thank you very much for interviewing me.
0: Hello, readers. Alex Davies is a senior editor at Business Insider, overseeing their transportation coverage, a former editor at Wired, where he helped start their transportation section in 2016, and the author of Driven, The Race to Create the Autonomous Car. Alex, thank you for the time. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Good to be here.
0: Great. So it's crazy to learn from this book that our smartest minds have only been pushing to make autonomous vehicles for a little bit less than 20 years now. But that's not to say people haven't dreamt about it in the past. When did people start to consider the idea of self-driving cars?
1: Right around the time people came up with the car itself. The automobile offered a lot of key advantages over the horse-drawn carriage. But one thing you lost was that all of a sudden you didn't have a sentient being in charge of your movement anymore for all of the downsides of a horse, like the manure and the fact that you only get one horsepower out Mm -hmm. of the thing is that, you know, if you stop paying attention, a horse isn't going to walk off a cliff or smack into a wall or something. And the moment people started driving their own cars, they started realizing that that was an issue. You really have to be on top of your game all the time to be driving. So you see these efforts and then, 1920s and 30s, really early on in the history of the car, when people are starting to play around with the idea of, well, maybe we could use radio signals to control a car. And then in the 50s, slightly more seriously, companies like General Motors, working with RCA, starts experimenting with the idea of embedding magnets in the roadway, like tearing up pavement, putting down magnets, and then putting down more concrete or asphalt. And putting sensors in cars that could then follow those magnets along the road. But it's not really until the 70s, 80s that the computing power and the sensors you need to really make a self-driving car start coming along.
0: As with most advanced technology, the modern pursuit to create and innovate autonomous vehicles started with the military. How does Section 220 of the Floyd D. Spence National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal 2001 fit in here? And who was behind this portion of the bill?
1: So this bill is something Congress passes. The president signs into law near the end of every year. It's a military budget. It just says, you know, here's how much troops are going to pay for medical prescriptions. Here are the Air Force bases we're going to shut down because we're no longer using them. All that sorts of stuff. John Warner, who was a senator at the time, did a lot of the writing of this bill, or his staff did a lot of the writing of this bill, but it was his ideas behind it. And he had seen the Predator drone in action. The Predator drone came into service in the mid-90s. And he thought this was great. All of a sudden, the US military is just as powerful, and you don't have human American pilots in harm's way all of a sudden. Everything seems much more efficient. So he says, this seems like a great idea. Why don't we do this for ground vehicles as well? Which is a very simple thing to say. It's a simple line to draw if, that is, you don't know anything about the differences between making something fly itself in the sky and making something drive itself on the ground. But John Warner gets a mandate into this military bill that says by 2015, so 15 years out at the time, the U.S. military should make sure that one third of its military ground vehicles are unmanned, basically autonomous. And this was a completely insane mandate at the time, and I don't think anyone ever really thought they would move quite that quickly. But the idea was to kind of light a fire under the U.S. military to start making more serious progress toward getting American troops out of vehicles the way we had gotten them out of fighter jets with the advantage of the Predator truck.
0: And did it end up lighting the fire under Tony Tether, the guy responsible for the DARPA Grand Challenge? And what exactly is the DARPA Grand Challenge for anybody who is unfamiliar with its beginnings a little bit less than 20 years ago?
1: Sure, that's exactly what happened. So Tony Tether was the director at the time of DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. It's an arm of the Pentagon that's sort of like a skunkworks arm. It's independent of the Army and the Marines and the Navy and the Air Force. It's its own weird little unit. It's very small with a decent sized budget, but only a couple hundred people at any given time. Its job is essentially to think of the inventions that will ensure that the US will never be militarily surprised. And the task there is to really think of crazy stuff. And it was created in the wake of the Soviet Union launching Sputnik, which kind of shocked America that the Soviets were that far ahead. And they said, we need an arm of the military that's going to be always be working on stuff like this so that we stay one step of ahead even if 98 percent of our, our ideas are totally insane and go nowhere so thanks to darpa you get things like the internet gps stealth bombers it's a pretty good track record it's a pretty good greatest hits list anyway with a lot of albums that are that are pretty terrible
0: what are some of the duds
1: a lot of stuff like early on they were involved in um encounter insurgency work and so this one isn't quite so much a dud as it is like something darpa doesn't like to talk about darpa created ancient orange just the thing you know that caused terrible diseases both for americans and vietnamese and the people of southeast asia and you know a lot of stuff that just never really went anywhere i remember the phrase monkey-based mind control <laughs> um you know although really like all sorts of crazy stuff that never went anywhere but the idea was that there would always be anything really was worth trying and darpa interestingly is an agency that rejects the idea of institutional memory and it's a very high turnover agency people who come into darpa usually only last 3 or 4 years and the idea is they always want fresh blood and the fact that someone tried monkey-based mind control 10 years ago doesn't mean that someone shouldn't try it again now because maybe they'll think of something different or maybe they can find a way to make it work. And it's worth trying. And that is the mission of this agency. So when John Warner and the U.S. Congress said, U.S. military, make one-third of ground vehicles autonomous, the job kind of naturally fell to DARPA, which for years by this point had been funding early research into the idea of autonomous vehicles. A lot of that work had been going on at places like Carnegie Mellon and Stanford, universities with big robotics programs, MIT also, and then at your usual roster of big defense contractors. But by 2001, when that that bill came into effect, or 2000, sorry, Tony Tether, the DARPA director really wasn't happy with the progress they had made. Starbed spent God knows how much money and a couple of decades funding research and it just wasn't making that much progress or you'd get these academic institutions and they'd say, okay, we'll take 18 months and we'll we'll accomplish these very small goals and everything was moving really incrementally. Now, all of a sudden, you've got this mandate. You've got 15 years to actually figure this thing out. And so Tony Tether in 2003 says, let's do something a little differently. And DARPA, by virtue of being its own weird agency, gets to play by some of its own rules. It doesn't have to let out contracts. There's actually a congressional bill that says if DARPA wants to, DARPA can have a contest with a prize up to $1 million. If it wants to offer any more, it needs congressional approval. So Tony Tether in 2003 says, we're not making enough progress on self-driving vehicles, unmanned, autonomous vehicles. We really need this for the military. And at this point, we're starting to get enmeshed in wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so all of a sudden the problem seems more pressing than even just that congressional mandate makes it. So he says, forget this stuff with the contractors, with the universities, let's have a race. In March, 2004, we're gonna host a thing called the DARPA Grand Challenge. Anyone in the country who wants to, Build a self driving car, bring it to the Mojave Desert in California, and we'll race them across the desert. Whoever comes in first place gets a million dollars. And that's the DARPA Grand Challenge.
0: It's such a wild premise. And I even remember reading about it back in the early part of this century. I would imagine, well, I know for sure because I've read your book, but it did not go off without any hitches. How did that first challenge end up for Tony Tether and the people of DARPA?
1: Oh, it went terribly. The first DARPA Grand Challenge was such a disaster, partly because the the timeline was relatively short. So really from the time competitors got all of the rules and a full understanding of what the race would be until race day was just over a year, which really is not very much time at all to figure out how to build a self-driving vehicle from scratch. So, Most of the more serious teams come from universities. From the beginning, Carnegie Mellon's team, which is run by one of the country's preeminent roboticists at the time, a guy named Red Whitaker. He calls his team the Red Team. Hmm. Red is not a humble person. (laughs) (laughs) He is a very accomplished roboticist. This is a guy who built robots in the 70s that went into the partially melted-down reactor at Three Mile Island, He built these eight-legged robot things that looked like huge spiders that would crawl into Antarctic volcanoes. He built robots that were made for Mars and other planets. And so when DARPA says, we're going to host this grand challenge, Red Whitaker's thought isn't, I'm going to participate. His thought is, I'm going to win. Because who else has any business winning this kind of competition? So Carnegie Mellon's red team is from the beginning a front runner, but you get lots of other interesting entries. You do get what DARPA really wants is, along with university teams, you get high school teams, you get people who are really just working out of their garage. There's a story of one DARPA official went on a site visit to visit one of the competitors. And this was part of the weeding out process because not everyone could actually bring their vehicle to the desert. And he knocks on the door and the competitor's wife opens the door and she says, are you the guys that have got my husband trying to mortgage this house? To fund this effort. And so they end up having their meeting a little like at the diner down the road because they are not welcome in this house.
0: Well, and along those lines, and uh, this speaks to the brashness of Red Whitaker, there was also something within the Carnegie Mellon Group called the Red Widows, too.
1: The Red Widows. Yeah, this was not something that people got into lightly. And you see this on a lot of teams people got really invested in the idea of the Grand Challenge. And talking to people about it, it wasn't just a million dollars. I don't think people cared about the money all that much. They thought it was great, but I don't think people really thought they would win or thought they would get it necessarily. And I think it wasn't really the financial motivation. People just got really excited about this idea. The thing I kept hearing from person after person was, this was so cool. In the peon of of the future. Self-driving cars are right up there, you know, with jetpacks. They are the thing you've got to have. And all of a sudden, these people are being tasked with building the future. So they get really into it. And on the red team, you get a group of men, and it was largely male-dominated, but there were plenty of women competing on these teams. But Carnegie Mellon, you get what you call the Red Widows, or these people who are become so committed to Red Whitaker's team and this effort to win the DARPA Grand Challenge that their wives become effectively widows for this year, year and a half. And Red Whitaker once said to me, he goes, there are no Sundays, there are no holidays. (laughs) And the most telling thing to me in that quote is that he didn't even think of saying there are no Saturdays. Like It wouldn't even occur to him that Saturday would be a day off. So you do get a lot of enthusiasm, but it turns out essentially that one year to try and crack this challenge just isn't enough time and that most of the competitors who were accepted to the finals just really weren't ready. So when you get to race day itself, which is March 13th, 2004, DARPA has this whole thing planned. It's 142 miles from Barstow, California, to Prim, Nevada, just over the state line. They've got a whole media set up in prim, a whole award ceremony ready. They figure at least a couple of vehicles will finish this race. And they've got the big check ready, the big million dollar check ready. And the vehicle that goes the farthest is Carnegie Mellon's Red Team, their modified Humvee called Sandstorm. It goes 7.4 miles before it gets stuck on a rock, doesn't recognize this, and burns its tires up until the rubber melts off. Most vehicles went well under a mile. Most went under 100 yards. Hmm. They'd go in, lose a sense of direction. One just drove through barbed wire and drove off into the desert. One flipped over when the road rose slightly. One Jeep shot out of the starting gate, stopped, did a U-turn, and drove back to the starting line. It was a real mess, and the media had a lot of fun skewering DARPA for promising this great race. And then I think the headline was failure, DARPA robots all fall down.
0: (laughs) Well, they were having to eat their own words not too long after that. We'll certainly get to that. And while we don't have time necessarily to go over every competitor in that first race, I think it is important for what we'll be talking about throughout the course of this conversation to have you tell the people about one of the other leaders of a team in that first race, the head of the blue team, Anthony Lewandowski. Who was Anthony Lewandowski at this time?
1: So in 2003, when he first hears about the Grand Challenge, Anthony Lewandowski is a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley. He's getting a master's in industrial engineering. He had grown up in Belgium with his mother, who is French and working for the EU. And when he got to high school, he moved to the U.S. to live with his father, who is American living in Marin County and Anthony, even from 14 years old in high school, had a very entrepreneurial streak. He would buy candy in bulk and sell it at a markup to his fellow students. He started web service companies. He always kind of had a knack for thinking of what was the next idea? What was the way to make money? And he had a natural interest in robotics and a a knack for it. He had won a regional robotics competition with a robot he built to sort monopoly money. So when he hears about the darby Grand Challenge, you know his mother knew he was into robots, knew he liked cars, and so she emails him about this and says, you know, check this out. Maybe you'll be interested. So Anthony goes down from Berkeley to the first meeting to talk about the Grand Challenge, which is at the Peterson Automotive Museum in LA. He drives down with a friend. He listens to this, and he starts thinking, okay, like. What kind of vehicle should I build? Most of the competitors in there go in with modified things. Carnegie Mellon uses a Humvee. Other vehicles use ATVs. You even see a couple of golf carts. Anthony, on the drive back north, he's thinking about this, and he says that a pack of motorcyclists streams by his car, and they're weaving in and out of traffic. And he says, forget a self-driving car. I'm going to build a self-driving motorcycle. This thing's going to have a great advantage in this race. It'll be nimble. It'll be able to, you know, it'll have a greater margin of error. If the road is ten yards wide, why not build a vehicle that's just a couple of feet across? You've got, you know, you can make that many more mistakes. So he spends the better part of a year, though, just trying to figure out not how to make a motorcycle drive and navigate itself, but how to make a motorcycle stand up on its own. But I think you've got to give him credit. It was probably in retrospect, not a good way to win the Grand Challenge. But Anthony's got this knack for entrepreneurism. And so virtually every article you read from the time about the Grand Challenge mentions at least two teams. Everyone mentions Carnegie Mellon as the front runner. And everyone mentions Anthony Lewandowski as kind of the zany, bootlegged underdog in this race.
0: So Sebastian Thrun was not in the race. He was actually in the crowd for that very first DARPA Grand Challenge. Who exactly was he at the time? And what did he realize about the contestants that helped him with his entry in the ensuing DARPA Grand Challenge?
1: Sebastian Thrun was another roboticist. He had actually done a fair bit of work at Carnegie Mellon. He spent several years there working with Red Whitaker. He was originally from West Germany and was something of a superstar computer scientist. So Carnegie Mellon lured him to the US. And then after a few years there in Pittsburgh, Stanford lured him out to California and put him in charge of its artificial intelligence laboratory, which is kind of a vaunted institution. It was one of the first places where real artificial intelligence work had happened decades earlier. So Thrun is, does some work with DARPA. He does robotics work. And so DARPA invites him out to the Grand Challenge, just to watch. He hadn't been involved. That was right around the time he was moving. So he says, this isn't a great thing for me to get involved in. But he's sitting in the stands and he watches vehicle after vehicle totally fall flat on its face, some pretty literally. And he says, none of these vehicles see anything. They're not seeing the world. And he realizes that a lot of teams had over played the hardware aspect of this challenge. They had put a ton of effort and months and months of work into making these incredibly beefed up vehicles that could handle the rigors of the desert. Whereas the, the road, if you could actually stay on the road, the driving itself wasn't that tough. And Thrum thinks about it and says, the real challenge here, this is a software challenge. It's not a hardware challenge. So when DARPA says, The 2004 race was a failure, but we're going to do this again in 2005. Come back 18 months, and this time the prize will be $2 million. Thrun says, Okay, now I've got to get in it because I think I can do a lot better than these guys. And, you know, I said earlier Red Whitaker is not a humble guy, neither is Sebastian Thrun. Hmm. They're very different in demeanor. Sebastian's like kind of a little more suave than Red is. Red is this very big, brash ex Marine. Sebastian's like cool, very very always very nicely dressed, but he's got an ego on him too. And he thinks, I can beat these guys. I can beat my old colleague, Red, and I can beat everyone else in this field. So he teams up, He he builds a small student team, and he teams up with Volkswagen, which comes in with a very tempting offer, which is, we will handle the hardware aspects of this vehicle. We'll give you a vehicle that we will wire up to run off of the computers that you build, and we'll toughen it up a little bit for the desert. And your job is just to make the software. Sebastian comes up with all of these different software tricks, these things that are very early examples of machine learning to create in his vehicle, which he calls Stanley. And after just a few months of work, he says, our first challenge, we're going to bring it down to the old grand challenge course, and we're going to see how far it goes. My goal is to within three months, one semester, build a vehicle that can go at least a mile. And it goes well past a mile. It even goes past the point where Sandstorm, Carnegie Mellon's vehicle, which had gone the farthest, gets caught up. It goes about eight and a half miles before it goes a little crazy. And Thrun says at the time, it's not a very smooth system. He compares it to driving like a a drunken squirrel. It's kind of all over the place, but manages to stay in its road. And then he, he sheds his student team and he picks like five people. And so the way I think about it is he trades in his army for a SWAT team. He picks these really all-star students and he says, we're going to spend the next six months to a year and we're just going to work on this. And he builds the vehicle that ends up winning the
0: 2005 Grand Challenge. So Lewandowski tried to qualify for that second race, but unfortunately his motorcycle didn't cut it. And this time around, there were enough capable vehicles that he did not make it to the finals. However, Thrun and Lewandowski end up partnering with Google afterward. What did they end up doing for Google after that second race?
1: So after the 2005 Grand Challenge, it's not immediately clear that there's going to be another DARPA challenge. There, There is a third one, but DARPA doesn't announce it right away.
0: And that's the urban so all race, the, correct?
1: That's the urban challenge, yeah. yes, in 2007. But it's maybe six months after the grand challenge that DARPA actually announces they're going to do this. So in the meantime, all of these competitors kind of go home and think, all right, well, what do we do next? What do we do with all of this tech that we've developed? And one thing that Thrun had gotten really interested in while he was training his vehicle was he would enjoy just looking at its camera feed as it drove around the desert where he was testing it and just seeing, like, oh, isn't it neat? Like it's like this car drove and I can go through kind of this virtual map. And so he assigns one of his students to turn this into a real software tool, and he he creates a company that he calls View Tool, which eventually it gets bought up by Google, which is interested in doing something that becomes Google Street View. Google founder Larry Page had been working on a project that looks very much like Street View today, but had been the team he had was using this very inefficient process. And when he sees what Sebastian Thrun has created with ViewTool, he says, oh, no, you've got to come into Google. I'm going to hire you and you're going to do this. And Sebastian brings Anthony along with him. They had met through the Grand Challenges. And Sebastian wasn't especially impressed by the motorcycle itself. In fact, when he gave talks later about the Grand Challenge, he always included training clips of the motorcycle falling over over and over and over, including one time it jumped over an embankment and fell into a pond and drowned itself. But Sebastian was very impressed with Anthony himself. He thought... This guy, for someone who has created his own team, managed to get his own funding, like he's a real go-getter. And I and I like the way he thinks. He's a very outside-the-box thinker. So he brings Anthony along into Google to help him build up Street View. And they map something like a million miles in just a couple of months and blow Larry Page away with the speed and, and skill with which they build up that program.
0: And that ultimately leads to them heading up the Google push to create an autonomous vehicle. There are a few different versions of the story that compelled Larry Page to have that company attempt to create automated cars that were fit for public streets. Which version of that story do you believe?
1: Yeah, so this is one I could never quite get nailed down because I think everyone likes to have their own image and their own role in the story because It's a really important moment, the moment Google decides to create its own self-driving car team effort. Because Larry Page had attended the, the 2007 Urban Challenge, which is the one that actually puts vehicles in a mock city. So for the first time, instead of just driving across the desert, you have robotic cars doing left turns into traffic and handling intersections and parking lots. And all of a sudden it becomes much easier to see not just the military aspect of this, but how these things could apply in the civilian world. And the opportunity to make a lot of money doing this. Transportation is trillions of dollars, and if you can bite off a tiny piece of that, you can dwarf even what Google was at the time. So the story, I believe, comes down to some version of this. Anthony and Sebastian Thrun had kept kind of quietly plugging away at the idea of self-driving cars Anthony got invited onto a Discovery Channel show called Prototype This, which was a one season kind of engineering based show. And one of their challenges was to make pizza delivery automatic to free pizza delivery from the delivery guy. And Anthony participated in that episode and he brought in a version of his self-driving car that he had made Um, in a Prius this time. The motorcycle was long retired. It was actually in the Smithsonian by this time, where it still is today. And so they drove a pizza from the North Beach neighborhood of San Francisco to Treasure Island, which is this island in the middle of the San Francisco Bay where the show was filmed. And I think the story goes something like, that was Anthony's effort to keep pushing at this technology and to show Larry Page that this was something worth pursuing where Maybe Larry Page wasn't totally into it. That's one version of it. Sebastian Thron's story, version of the story actually downplays his own role. He says, Larry came to him and says, Sebastian, I want you to build me a self-driving car. I've wanted this my whole life. You're the guy who can do it, build me a team. So it's hard to pin down exactly who was motivating this, whether it was Anthony and Sebastian, quietly pushing Larry Page to do it, or Larry Page pushing the idea on them. But ultimately, they decided this is something that Google needs to get serious about. So in at the end of 2008, Sebastian Thrun brings together the best self-driving car engineers he knows, and they're all veterans of the Grand Challenges and Urban Challenge. It's essentially an amalgamation of the Carnegie Mellon teams and the Stanford teams which are the two top competitors in each of those races and now they all they all come together as one
0: what were the initial goals of this project
1: the initial goal was very open ended it was something like make a self driving car whatever that means but larry page and sebastian thrun were smart enough to know that that was much too open ended a question you needed something more distinct as a goal and more short-term to get the team going. So they come up with a challenge that has two elements. The first element is, in the next two years, drive 100,000 autonomous miles on California roads total. So those can be highway roads. You can do the same stretch over and over again. That's the mass scale challenge. The other one is the really tricky part. Larry Page and Sergey Brin, His Google co founder, who's also involved in this project, sit down with Google Maps and they select 10 different routes of California roads, each about 100 miles, so 1,000 miles in total. And they say, Your car has to be able to drive each of these routes from beginning to end without any human intervention. It has to do it entirely by itself. So they go and they pick like the nastiest routes they can imagine, you know. They pick San Francisco's famous Lombard Street, the back and forth street down a really steep hill. They pick, you know, the toughest highway routes, the trickiest areas of San Francisco and Los Angeles. And so it's about a thousand miles in total. And so the team calls this the Larry 1K. (laughs) And this is their first real challenge is to make a car that can do all of these roads because the 100,000 mile thing ends up being relatively easy. They've got a fleet of maybe a dozen cars. Each of those cars is driving up and down the 101 freeway and the, you know, a couple other freeways in the Bay Area all day. And so they hit 100,000 miles, no problem. Because there, anytime the computer screws up, a human can take control. And once he returns control to the computer, the odometer starts ticking again. The Larry 1K is a lot trickier because the roads aren't easy, you know, and you can't have a human intervene. But ultimately, they figure it out. And this team has essentially a blank check to do this. It's a small team at the time. It's about a dozen strong. They can spend all the money they want. They can buy all the computers they want, bring in the best talent they can find. And about 18 months later, they've checked off every one of those routes and they have a really big party at Sebastian
0: Thrun's house. In Palo Alto, I can imagine how, how much of a rager that one was. If I'm not mistaken, the first true road test from the Larry 1K was the Pacific Coast Highway, a road that I'm happy to say that I've driven once before and probably never will do again. Not only did they drive that road, they went the difficult way. I think they went north to south, which just is that much more treacherous if you're actually behind the wheel. How did the car fare that first time around?
1: So, the first time they they drive the route, and you're right, that was the first route they challenged out of out of these ten. And they picked it because, you know, as difficult as that road may be for humans or as scary as that road may be for humans, because they're really small margins of error, and if you fail, you fall into the ocean.
0: Yeah.
1: Um for a car, though, for a robot in particular, that road wasn't that tough, and Chris Ermson, the Carnegie Mellon engineer who ended up leading this team, said, we're going for this one first because it has very few traffic lights, and most of the way, it's just a two-lane road, or even, you know, you've only got one lane to stay in. So the challenge, you don't have to deal with that many intersections. You just have to stay in your lane and not hit the car in front of you, <laughs> essentially. And so in that sense, it actually doesn't look that different from the grand challenges of 2004 in 2005. It does take them a couple of tries. The first time they try it, the car's kind of driving all over the place and it's taking these turns really aggressively. Then they they go back and they they reprogram the software a little bit and tweak how it takes turns because they're feeling sick just sitting in this thing. And and
0: I think what you said is that technically that's actually how you're supposed to take those turns, but because it was making them as humans nervous, they're like, we better tweak this technology in case somebody who isn't familiar with what's going on here is ever having to ride in one of these cars. Right.
1: Right. The way these, this is how you can tell their engineers, they program the car to take turns kind of the way a race car driver takes turns, which is like hitting the apex. And this is when you decelerate and this is when you accelerate but that is not how humans drive on a regular basis. We do not like to drive like race car drivers. (laughs) And this is probably one of the first elements, one of the first times where they have to stop and think about what is the experience of the human sitting in this thing? Because in the DARPA challenges, no one sat in the car. Even really for testing most of the time, you didn't have a human being in the thing. And all of a sudden you had to think about what is the experience of riding in one of these things?
0: So, we're going to fast forward just a little bit. Ride sharing really starts to catch on in 2013. And it makes sense that Google, in its attempt to create a self driving car, would be interested in partnering up with a ride sharing company. Why did Google and Uber ultimately decide to link up with one another in 2013,
1: 2014? So, the link up you get between Google and Uber ends up actually having nothing to do with with self-driving Uber at the time was kind of this booming company on the rise. And if you remember like 2010, no one had heard of ride sharing the idea that you would hire someone other than a professional taxi driver to take you anywhere. was Hmm. insane. And five years later, it was totally like, it was like the only thing you would do. And this is the difference between my younger brother and I who's five years younger than me. He said, wait, how'd you get through college without Uber? I was like, we took taxis or we walked. And I went to school in Minnesota. It was freezing. And so Uber was revolutionary and it was absolutely exploding as a startup. And so Google, which has more money than it knows what to do with, is looking to invest in up and coming companies. And so Larry Page wants to put an investment into Uber because he says, this company's doing great, got plenty of money. This seems like a perfectly logical way to invest some of it and, and make even more money. Travis Kalanick, the Uber CEO, comes in thinking Google has just shown off this self-driving car and he sees this very quickly. He sees the challenge to his business, which is that if Google can build a self-driving car, it can essentially create Uber, but without Uber's biggest expense, which is the drivers. I mean, Uber was very far from profitability at the time. It's still pretty far from profitability right now, even as a public company because it still has to pay its drivers. It doesn't get to collect all of those fares. So Kalanick sees two things. He sees, one, if someone else creates this technology, they're going to completely eat my lunch. And two, if I can get this technology into my cars, I can solve my biggest problem, which is profitability. So he goes in thinking, we should absolutely collaborate on self-driving cars, but Google actually rebuffs him on that front. They say, no, this investment, this is just a regular investment. We don't actually wanna work with you. We don't want to do what seems the natural thing, which is to put our self-driving technology into your fleet of cars.
0: That's interesting. So they both went into that deal understanding that they were never going to be in it long-term in that regard, with Google self-driving cars helping Uber eventually turn to profitability.
1: Correct. That that was not part of the deal. And so what happens is Kalanick comes away from that thinking, well, if Google's not going to work with me on this technology, I need to develop it myself. And so through 2014 and early 2015, he starts thinking about how can he build a team that can rival Google's and catch up on some of the work. By this point, Google's team has been going full force on self-driving technology for five years. And Google is starting to talk about launching its own service that'll that'll look something like Uber. So Kalanick knows he's got to fire back and
0: hard. And so I believe that's when Uber decides to contact the robotics company NREC and ultimately work with them as well. It's interesting because Google had six years of a head start on perfecting this technology for public consumption But they squeezed pretty hard when they heard this news, when they heard that Uber was going this route. Why was that so concerning to them, considering that they did have that six-year jump?
1: The really tricky thing about self-driving technology is that the hard part doesn't come at the beginning. Getting started is the easy part, which is why, in retrospect, the Larry 1K, the success there, that was just the team kind of figuring out the most basic things you know, even those 10 routes for all their difficulty were relatively manageable compared to the real task you have to do, which is to figure out how to make a robot that can handle absolutely everything that could ever happen on the road. The scale of that task is hard to grasp, and it was hard to grasp for these engineers who felt really successful early on. And the reason they got scared when Uber started its own program in 2015 was that after six years of work, they didn't feel particularly close to being done. Hmm. They were reaching the limits of what they knew their technology could do at that point, or they were really starting to plateau. That was the problem. In the early years, you saw this incredible rate of improvement. And by 2014, 2015, that has slowed to a crawl. You know, They're still making steady progress, but they're spending way more money. The team has ballooned to hundreds of engineers dozens of cars in these fleets or hundreds of cars in these fleets. And they're not making the same progress anymore because the volume of the task is really hard. And then Uber comes along with all of this ambition and all of this money that it's willing to spend. And now, for one thing, Google has to fight to keep its talent. And it has to fight to bring in the talented engineers. And within the robotics world, it's not that big a world. And so there isn't that much talent. That's still something of a bottleneck today. And so Uber comes in firing, you know, it's got ambition, it's got money, it's got talent. And all for the first time, Google sees a serious threat to its dominance in a field that it had had entirely to itself for years.
0: Well, I guess now would be a good time to bring Lewandowski back up. He is with the Google team this entire time. How and why does he end up leaving Google for the Uber team, though?
1: So the other thing that happened in those six years at the Google team which is called Project Chauffeur, the Chauffeur team, is that you get a lot of infighting. For the first two years or so, really when they're working on the Larry 1K, the team is very united. They have one goal. They know exactly what they need to do. It's small. Everyone kind of has their area and they charge forward and everything's pretty copacetic. Early on in these days, Anthony Lewandowski and Chris Ermson, who's the leader of the team, are, are roommates. That's how well they get along. Anthony says, you know, Chris, you're moving here from Pittsburgh. You don't have a house yet. Live in my house. I've got plenty of room. So it's like, great, what a nice guy. Their relationship entirely falls apart over the next couple of years because they are diametrically opposed characters. Chris Ermson is like really your like a typical Canadian guy. He's like very careful. He moves slowly. He thinks everything through. He's very research oriented. Anthony is very much the opposite. Anthony is a cut corners, make progress, move as quickly as possible to something you can actually put in the market kind of guy.
0: Real life odd couple.
1: Except where I feel like it's Felix and Oscar kind of like each other. These guys (laughs) end up hating each other. They can't stand each other. They end up fighting for control of the team. Chris wins that. They end up fighting over who gets the biggest bonus. Anthony, for various reasons, gets a much bigger bonus than Chris does. And they each kind of have factions within the Google team. There are people who are Team Anthony and there are people who are Team Chris. And so you get these really bitter, acerbic fights in this team as they start to figure out the much harder questions, like how do you bring this to market? What should the path be? Who should lead this thing? How safe is safe enough? And so they end up having these idiotic fights, everything becomes a proxy battle for control of this team and its direction. They have one fight over whether the car's self-driving system should have an on button and an off button, or one button that does both off and on. This is a fight that people are yelling over. Hmm. And so by 2015, Chris has basically won the battle for control. He is in charge of the team. Anthony's been sidelined. He's in charge of Some small little thing. He's totally in the corner, and he's really unhappy about it. But because of a very strange bonus structure, they don't get their big payouts until the end of 2015, which was right around the time Travis Kalanick realizes that self-driving cars are harder to make than he'd hoped. He's a year into his program. His team hasn't made the progress he wants, and now all of a sudden, Anthony Levandowski's got his big paycheck from Google, and he's looking to leave. And these two, where. Chris Urmson and Anthony Lewandowski are diametrically opposed. Anthony Lewandowski and Travis Kalanick get along really well. They connect almost immediately because they think about the world of business in a very similar sense. And so they hatch a scheme whereby Anthony will leave Google, create his own startup, which will focus on self-driving trucks. And then almost immediately afterward, Uber will buy that startup and thus bring Anthony and his talent and some of his loyal engineers into Uber, and that'll supercharge their effort.
0: And also, as this was ultimately found out, some very important documents that had to do with Google's business dealings and some plans and things like that from the Google to the Uber team. We'll get to that a little bit more here shortly. However, something that has been conspicuously absent in our conversation, Alex, is the big three U.S. automakers. When did they start seriously considering autonomous vehicles as part of their business strategy? And what are some of the most valuable fruits that have arisen from that labor over the last half decade or so?
1: So for the middle half of my story, the automakers pretty much disappear. They're involved to a decent extent in the DARPA challenges. Ford has a team there. GM works very closely with Carnegie Mellon in winning the 2007 Urban Challenge. So they're right in it. But when the challenges wrap up, that's the end of 2007, right? Remember what happened to the automakers in 2008. <laughs> like Ford almost goes bankrupt. Ford has to mortgage everything it owns down to the blue oval trademark just to stay solvent. GM goes bankrupt. And so in the aftermath of the DARPA challenges, when these engineers are thinking like Chris Ernson and other people like Carnegie Mellon go to GM. They say, let's keep this going. Give us some money. We can make this thing for real. GM says, we do not have the money for that. We do not have the bandwidth for that. Like, We are trying to stay alive and ultimately failing to do so. So over the next couple of years, while Google is racing ahead and Uber is becoming a real force, GM is crawling out of bankruptcy, trying to remake itself. Ford is trying to remake itself under the, the leadership of Alan Mulally, whose task is just to like take this 100-year-old sclerotic mess of an organization and just make it into a streamlined automaker. So basically, they've got no bandwidth to think about what the next phase of driving evolution looks like until around 2014, 2015, people in the companies start paying attention to this, start paying attention to Uber and realize that maybe the model that they've created and that by which they live, which is they build a car, a human buys that car, a human drives that car, and a few years later, they want a new car and you hope they buy another car from you. Like that model isn't going to last or, you know, it might completely disappear or it might not be the only way people want to drive and use their cars. And that's when they start to realize, oh, crap, we've got to get in on this self-driving thing. And these are not companies well-suited to this kind of thing. Google can very easily say, here's a billion dollars a year. Here's an office building. Go team, like just go do this thing. You're totally free to do it. Uber can do the same thing. These are very nimble companies, even as they grow. The automakers are not nimble. They do not have the software skills to do this kind of thing. And so for years, they struggle to do it. Ultimately, what you see is they figure out that, The correct move is to pair Silicon Valley with Detroit. So General Motors ends up buying a self-driving startup called Cruise in 2015 or 2016, and that funds their fully self-driving effort. Ford ends up working with a company called Argo, which is founded by a Carnegie Mellon veteran and Google veteran named Brian Selesky. But the fruits of their research that we're seeing right now are in systems like Cadillac Super Cruise, where alongside the fully self-driving thing, which is where you can make a car without a steering wheel, without pedals, human doesn't do any driving, doesn't even have the option to drive. General Motors in particular is pushing forward an effort of how do we build on what we have? How do we take cruise control and make it even better, where you don't even have to have your hands on the wheel? A few years ago, they released a system called Cadillac Super Cruise, which is now available on a few models, which is a truly hands-off system. Cameras and radars, watch the road. They've got really detailed maps of U.S. highways, car sticks to its lane, safe distance from other cars. You don't even have to keep your hands on the wheel anymore.
0: Is Tesla further along than the big three with regards to self-driving cars, in part because of what you just explained about big tech having more disposable income versus these companies that have been around for 100 plus years and just have less wiggle room. Is that the explanation to go along with maybe Elon Musk's willingness to push the limits on things?
1: I think that definitely explains how Tesla has been able to accelerate its development. So Tesla Autopilot works a lot like Cadillac Super Cruise, where It's meant for highway use, but the car can keep itself in its lane. It can occasionally pass other vehicles. It'll really do the task of highway driving so the human doesn't have to have their hands on the wheel all the time. Even though, Tesla, you are supposed to technically keep your hands on there. Most people don't, and Elon Musk certainly doesn't when he shows it off. But they started developing that program a couple of years after Cadillac started Super Cruise and released it a few years before Super Cruise came out. So they definitely move much faster. And Tesla's key advantage is that it does a lot of work with over the air software updates so they can update your car software years after you've bought it just the way your iPhone or Android phone can. And so they can say, you know, we've made autopilot a little bit better download this new software patch and your car will now be able to handle all of the situations it has to take on even more cleanly than it does. However, when Elon Musk talks about full self-driving being imminent, you know, just a few months from now, which I feel like he's been saying for a few years now, I put a lot of salt on what he's saying there. Elon Musk has a really long track record of missing deadlines. And there's really no evidence that I have seen, as someone who follows this area quite closely, that his cars will be anything like the fully self-driving description that people may have in their minds.
0: All right. Uh, it's time to wrap up Lewandowski's story. What happened with him starting in 2017 to the present?
1: So 2017, Anthony is you know, happily at Uber. He's in charge of Uber's self-driving program. He figures no one's going to point out the fact that right before quitting Google, he downloaded something like 14,000 technical files onto a hard drive, and walked out the door. Then Waymo, which is the company that comes out of Google's self-driving car team, they spin it out into its own company. It's called Waymo. Waymo drops this bombshell lawsuit on Uber in February of 2017 saying, the only reason Uber has been able to catch up with us at all is that they hatched the scheme where Anthony Lewandowski would steal all of our key trade secrets and bring them to Uber and use them to accelerate its self-driving car efforts. They never actually quite managed to prove the thrust of their case, which is that Uber used those self-driving trade secrets to advance its own efforts. But they do manage to put a major dent in Anthony Lewandowski's life. He's not named in the lawsuit, but he immediately sees the writing on the wall that this could go very bad for him. So when he's called to testify in depositions, he takes the fifth. He's like, I'm not cooperating with this at all. I've got to protect myself. Uber, Travis Kalanick says, all right, you're fired. You are not helping this team anymore. So Anthony gets fired. Google and Uber ultimately settle the case about a year later. Google gets a a small payout but nothing major and mostly the lawyers get super rich. But then about a year after that, Anthony, who thinks he's scot-free, He's already started another self-driving company called Pronto. This one also focuses on trucking. Then he gets hit with criminal charges of trade secret theft. Interestingly, the bar for trade secret theft is lower in a sense. The government doesn't have to prove that Anthony used those trade secrets to advance Uber. All they have to prove is that he took them when he left Google and that he had some malevolent intent to use them for economic gain. And it's something like 33 counts of trade secret theft that he's facing. And at first, you know, he's very full of bravado. I'm going to fight these charges. They're just attacking me. This is common in engineering. I'm innocent. But ultimately, he ends up pleading guilty. He says, I'm not going to win this fight. So he pleads guilty to one count of trade secret theft related to a document he had walked out. There was essentially like a progress report hmm. that the team kept every week where it's like, here are the challenges we're working on. Here's how we've solved previous challenges. Like probably the most valuable document in all of those files that he took because it's directly telling you how to solve the hardest challenges in self-driving pleads guilty. He's ultimately sentenced to 18 months in prison and he has to pay a pretty hefty fine. And that's where I thought the story ended. That's where the story in my book ends because my book came out at the beginning of January. Anthony's going to go to jail because... He pleaded guilty to trade secret theft, and his sentence would start after the pandemic had ended, the judge said. So who knows when the jail sentence would have started. Then January 20th, 2021, outgoing President Donald J. Trump issues Anthony Lewandowski a full pardon. So he is off scot-free.
0: Wow. No fine, no jail time. I had not read that. That's interesting. Alex, one bizarre side note to the Anthony Lewandowski story is that he founded a religion called the Way of the Future that was, quote, dedicated to the idea that as artificial intelligence progressed, machines were bound to rule over humans. So I ask that not to wonder if you ever found yourself caught up in Lewandowski's religion, but for somebody that has covered transportation like you have going back several years now, is it at all concerning to you whether or not cars end up self-driving that so much of this technology is becoming digital online and therefore hackable considering some of what we're seeing around the world where cyber criminals are shutting down important elements of daily life like sewage systems and electrical grids. Do you think that we are leaving ourselves vulnerable along those lines as well with what's happening to cars nowadays? In short, yes.
1: I do think we're opening ourselves to a major threat here. I'm not worried about artificial intelligence the way the Terminator portrays it, or even Anthony's religion portrays it, where Anthony says, this thing is going to rule over us, and we should worship it, because wouldn't you rather be a pet than livestock, (laughs) and don't you want it to be nice to you? (laughs) Um, I don't know if ultra-uber-rational computers will buy that argument, but anyway... (laughs) The things I worry about with the advance of technology and artificial intelligence into all of our lives is that it becomes very hard to control. We end up exposing ourselves in a lot of ways. And we put more and more trust in artificial intelligence programs that we don't even necessarily fully understand how they work. And as we talk about things like, you know, neural nets that will determine what someone pays in bail, like All of these things become very subject to weaknesses that can be hard to root out. Hacking is certainly a vulnerability. I'm not too worried about you know, me being in a car and someone hacking in, taking control, and driving me off a cliff if I don't give them my life savings. I think that's probably extreme and that computer security professionals will be able to guard against the worst of that. But it's not crazy to think that the way we use ransomware will be used against our cars you know, maybe someone can't take control of the driving itself, but they can't shut it down and say, you can't use your car if you don't pay me X amount of money. You know, that's ransomware attacks are super common today. And there's no reason to think they won't hit our cars as well.
0: What's the next big step for self-driving vehicles?
1: That could go a bunch of ways. And I think one of the interesting things you see is that The core self-driving team that starts to work at Google, for the most part, doesn't stay there. Anthony leaves in 2016, but he's not the only one who goes. Chris Armson goes. All these other top flight players go. And they all go because they, after six years with Google, think, I know how to do this better. Or I think if we change the business model, I can do something different. So you've got companies that are working on self-driving for mining vehicles. You've got sidewalk delivery robots. You've got long-haul trucks, you've got short-haul shuttles, you've got taxi-like services, you have vans that will operate in senior citizen retirement communities. So the technology has really shot off in a thousand different directions. You kind of have what I call the Google diaspora of founders who have gone to create their own companies attacking different elements of the problem. The next steps, I can definitely say, will be baby steps. This is not something where Steve Jobs walks out and where there was no iPhone three minutes ago, there is now an iPhone. Hmm. That is now a thing that exists. That is not how this technology rolls out. Waymo, the company that came out of Google's effort a couple of years ago, started accepting riders for a small ride hill service in the suburbs of Phoenix. And it slowly grew that. It's now, I think, open to the general public or a wider group of a few hundred riders. But if you're in Tempe or Mesa, Arizona, you can go and you can call up a Google self-driving car and it will pick you up and it will drive you to where you want to go within a circumscribed area. So the next steps for Waymo are add another city to its service, keep growing its Phoenix service, maybe get into self-driving trucks. So the next steps, I'm afraid it's kind of disappointing, but but they are baby steps. It's very small movements forward in a lot of different areas. But... The way I think about it is the real analogy here or the real historical comparison isn't the car itself because the car itself was pretty much one or two inventions, right? It was the internal combustion engine and a few other things that made it work in a car. And then all of a sudden, everyone in America could build a car and sell cars. And, you know, you had this explosion in just a couple of years. I think the real comparison here is the internet. If you look at the very early days of the internet, just after it's, it was created as a DARPA product called the ARPANET originally, it was useful for very few things for very few people, right? The military used it a little bit. Academics used it a little bit. You could trade messages. And then over time, year after year, it could do more and more. More and more people accessed it. And it took on more and more applications to the point where now it just underpins absolutely everything where people talk about internet access as something like a human right. That is how fundamental this technology is to us. And that spread didn't happen from one day to the next. No one really said, Oh, well, what's the next big step for the internet? It just kept taking baby step after baby step after Mm -hmm. baby step. And I think that's the same thing you'll see with automated driving and mobility technology is that it'll spread slowly over time, where more and more people have access to it more and more people will use it in various aspects of our lives and a few decades down the line we're going to turn around and say wait we used to drive these things ourselves
0: uber announced that they were hoping to get a pilot program going for flying taxis in the dfw area i want to say at some point this decade is it realistic to expect flying cars as an option for us to get from point A to point B sometime in the next, I don't know, 20 to 30 years?
1: What I love about the fact that flying cars are suddenly a serious thing or over the last couple of years, a lot of companies are working on these very small electric aircraft. They'll have something like 10 or 20 propellers on them and take off and land vertically, kind of like helicopters do, but ideally more efficiently and quietly that technology is effectively ready. It's really not that far. The things we have to figure out are certification and regulation and what safety protocols look like. I don't know how much people will really want these things in the skies overhead. I think that's one of the bigger roadblocks. But from a technological level in the next couple of years, it's absolutely feasible that I live in Oakland. Maybe I want to get to the San Francisco airport, which is normally like an hour drive and the traffic's terrible. Maybe I'll pay extra to have a little flying car, pick me up, you know, maybe a few blocks from my house and just drop me in in a dedicated area of SFO. But the really neat thing about that and the companies that are working on this will probably want to have pilots in their aircraft to begin with, but then eventually evolve to automation is that you ask someone, How difficult is aerial automation? And they say, it's easy compared to making something drive itself on the ground. You don't have to deal with trees and other cars and pedestrians and cyclists and animals. You're In the sky, there's basically nothing to hit. And that takes you all the way back to John Warner saying, the Predator drone, what a great thing. Why don't we just apply this to the ground? (laughs) And now you've got people saying, applying to this ground is way too difficult. Why don't we do this in the air?
0: And final thing, Alex, this book is dedicated to your grandpa who you call, quote, a great lover of books and a terrible driver of cars. What is your granddad's favorite book? And do you have a good example of his bad driving?
1: Okay. My grandfather's favorite books. He was really into the classics. He read like the Roman writers and my favorite thing to do when I He passed away about 10 years ago when I go see my grandmother. My favorite thing is to just look through his history books, huge tomes on the French Revolution and on medieval history. And the book that I remember he gave to me when I was a kid because he loved it was Le Morte d'Arthur, which is the Thomas Mallory King Arthur tales. It's like, you know, it's real big. It's several inches thick. And I remember like a 12-year-old on vacation at his house in France and just devouring this thing. So I don't know what his favorite book was, but that's the book that I think of the most when I think about him. His terrible driving, these stories come from my mother, mostly. It was just like he would drive, you know, he'd like smash into huge potholes. I remember once he was driving me to school because he was visiting us in New York. There was one road where you weren't, it was like technically a two-way street, but during school hours, it was a one-way street to control traffic. And he's completely oblivious and and the crossing guard is there like trying to get in front of his car, stopping him from going up that way and he blows right by her and gives her a little wave as he goes by (laughs) and just like shoots off into the distance happily. But I think when he gave up his driver's license, everyone breathed a sigh of relief.
0: Alex Davies is a senior editor at Business Insider, overseeing their transportation coverage, a former editor at Wired, where he helped start their transportation section in 2016, and the author of Driven, The Race to Create the Autonomous Car. Alex, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this book. Thanks, Trey. And thanks to you for listening. Check us out at booksonpod.com. You can hear all of our episodes there as well as subscribe to this podcast. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.